0: Bye, bye, bye. Could it be the blood? Could it be the love? Could it be in
1: the air that we Hello, out? and welcome once again to Watershed Writers, the radio documentary series and podcast that features writers creating literature in the Grand River region in southwestern Ontario. We read, write, and record on the traditional territories of the neutral, Anishinaabe, and Haudenosaunee peoples, and we are dedicated to bringing you stories about writers from diverse backgrounds. Our slogan is, listen local, think global. This is season four of Watershed Writers. I'm your host, Tannis McDonald. I'm a professor and a poet, a researcher, a prairie person living in KW, and I'm a big, big reader. I'm very happy to welcome our guest to this episode, the fiction writer, Carrie Snyder whom I have been happily reading since I first met her at a fundraiser to announce the establishment of the Wild Writers Festival in 2012, when the room was electric with the news that two local writers had been shortlisted for the Governor General's Award for Fiction, Tomas de Bosey for his short story collection, Siege 13, and Carrie Snyder for her book, The Juliet Stories. I began to follow Carrie's blog, which at the time was called Obscure Can-Lit Mama, and I got my hands on her next book, the historical novel Girl Runner, when it first came out. That book's about an Olympic-level female athlete in the 1930s and 40s, and it was shortlisted for the Rogers Trust Award in 2014. Carrie Snyder is the author of two novels, two short story collections, and two picture books for children. Carrie's also one of the co-founders with Lamise al Atare, of The X-Page, described as an interdisciplinary community arts project that connects women who are immigrants or refugees with artists in the Waterloo region who assist and mentor them in writing and performing their own stories. There have been four seasons of the X-Page so far, each culminating in a public performance of the stories. Carrie's latest book is the novel Francie's Got a Gun, published by Knopf Canada in 2022. The publishers describe it as a propulsive, multi-layered novel leavened with humor and a memorable affecting examination of the complex dynamics in a family that is breaking down and coming apart in front of the questioning, irrepressible, young person at its center. Welcome Carrie Snyder to Watershed Writers.
0: Thank you so much, glad to be here.
1: It's a pleasure to have you here. And you are the you know, prolific author of uh, so many books. Uh, it seems that uh, we should have had you on long ago, but you made it on in season four. So this is our fourth season and here you are. I wanna ask you a little bit about something you used to call yourself. I have to note this for our listening audience. This was your designation for yourself for a long time. You used to call your blog, Obscure canlet Mama. And uh, I wanted to know why you chose this and uh, why, of course, you don't use it anymore.
0: You know, when you do something that's just a split second decision and then it's there for, I don't know, 14, 15 years. (laughs) That was Obscure Canlit Mama. I started that blog. I had a newborn or relatively newborn baby. I think he would have been four months old at the time. He was my fourth of the four children that I have. So the house was crammed with young kids, like seven, five, two and a half, and this infant, and I was desperate for writing time. I just didn't have any time to write. My husband was staying home from work one morning a week so that I could have three hours or two and a half hours or whatever it work out to, to just write anything. And I quickly realized, well, I'm not going to be writing a novel. I can't write a short story. I don't know what I can write in this much time in a week. I realized, okay, well, people are doing this blog thing. It would have been 2008. And I know people were probably blogging for a while before that, but I opened it up. I realized, oh, this is really easy. You just make a title, say a little something about yourself, write your first post, hit post, and voila, published. It was just a real relief. And I haven't gone back to read that very first post in quite some time, but I literally put that much thought into what I would be called. And at the time, I had published one book of short stories called Hair Hat with Penguin Canada, but I was struggling to figure out how I would ever publish another book. I had written several manuscripts, spent lots of time working on them, and they were not getting published. I felt very obscure, but I also wanted to claim a teeny bit of space for myself in the CanLit world which is where I really longed to belong. And so uh, obscure Canlet and then Mama just seemed like, oh, this is what I'm doing right now. This is actually who I am right now. Like I barely have time for the Canlet part. And so I just threw that title up there. Then I was stuck with it <laughs> as, as the years went by. It was only in the last year that I decided to change the name. And that was because, first of all, I'd been kind of chafing under that name for a while not necessarily the obscure or the canlet or the mama, but maybe the three in combination just didn't seem to really define me anymore. And so a friend said, Hey, I really don't like this blog title for you. I just don't think it's right for you. And I'm like, okay, but it's really hard to change now. and, And how would I even do that? She's also a graphic designer. So she designed me a little some options and and we were like, well, what would it be? And I was like, just writer. Why don't we just do writer? That's what I do on this blog. I don't really write about my kids anymore. Definitely cut most of that out. I don't really talk about parenting anymore at all. Uh, And I do talk a lot about writing and just the struggle with being a writer, trying to be a writer for my whole life. What is that gonna look like? And so we played around with the title and my brother runs my website, which has my blog. And so he was able to put it up and change it. And there we go. I'm now just Carrie Snyder writer which ironically came at the exact same time that I started to work a different kind of a job that's not related to writing. It does seem like a strange irony that just at the very moment I declared myself to be a writer, I'm spending not so much time just at the present moment writing. Thank you for that. I, that
1: fulsome answer. I, and I think, you know, one of the reasons why we we have Watershed Writers as a as a podcast and as a broadcast on Midtown Radio is to highlight the lives of writers who exist outside of the the big metropolitan centers, right? And to suggest that there is a life at art to be had in Waterloo County and uh, the surrounding areas. And speaking of that, I want to ask you about another form of identification that you may uh, resonate with or not. I know that you were raised a Mennonite and I also know that that can mean any amount of of things. You can think of that in, in several ways. Can you say a little bit about your relationship to Waterloo County's Mennonite population, if you do have one, and perhaps about how you read Mennonite literature in Canada in in general?
0: Yes, so I am Mennonite by birth, which I think many Mennonites would identify as birth and culturally Mennonite. I do also attend a Mennonite church, which I'm relatively involved in. Both of my parents were Mennonite. And in terms of the Mennonite, it is it is a curious thing. People will make the assumption that, oh, you must have left the horse and buggy folk to like live in the secular world. But I was raised very secularly, and there's just a wide variety of Mennonites who all come from the Anabaptist tradition, which was from the 16th century when there was a split from the Catholic Church. And people broke off wanting to read and interpret the Bible for themselves and to to choose baptism as opposed to going through the catholic church where everyone is just baptized when they're very small and they don't make the choice so that's a big part of mennonite uh, is the anabaptist history and then pacifism is another big part of being mennonite which i would say is also a big part of how i was raised my mom is an ohio mennonite my dad is ontario mennonite southern ontario and they both actually came from the same exact tiny little part of alsace lorraine in northern france (laughs) their ancestors would have come from there and i will be butchering the exact dates of when they would have come their families would have come from there to the united states my dad's family then immigrated up to canada around the 1800s so pretty early and they came to waterloo region here so original settlers they took over land that had been promised so that you know that the the statement that we say the Haldeman County tract, and I'm sorry, I'm gonna I'm gonna spoil this and say it all wrong, but there's six miles on either side of the Grand River that were promised. Well, I think my family's on my dad's side. My ancestors settled there on land in Petersburg, and they were actually Amish, not Mennonite. The same with my mom's family was actually Amish too, and then sort of became Mennonite, lived more in the world. My grandma was a missionary was born into a missionary family. They were Amish but they became Mennonite, moved to Argentina when she was 2 years old and she grew up in Argentina as a missionary. She herself became a missionary and my dad was raised in Argentina and Puerto Rico as well as the United States as a missionary. So that's a very particular kind of strain of the Mennonite church too, the choice to go and try to be try to convert people <laughs> to the faith. In terms of Mennonite literature, I've struggled to define myself as a Mennonite writer. And I still, to some degree, don't really think of myself as a Mennonite writer. My parents themselves kind of struggled with being in the Mennonite church. They were always Mennonite by background and culturally. And we did attend church, usually Mennonite churches. Over the years, we lived in a lot of different places. Growing up, sometimes we didn't go to church. Uh, Mostly we did, but I felt their struggle with being part of the Mennonite church too. And we were always more on the secular side of things, even though my dad is a professor, or was a professor, retired professor of Anabaptist history. I sense it was more important to him than my mom. And then my mom had a real break from the church when I would have been a teenager, late teens. She decided she was done with the patriarchy and misogyny within the Mennonite church structure. And she was out of there. And, you know, I really don't blame her. There are those things that are woven into it. And when I think of Mennonite writing in Canada, of course, I think of Miriam Taves and her relationship with the Mennonite church, too, which has been quite fraught. I don't know that she would particularly choose to be identified as a Mennonite writer, but she probably can avoid it because Mennonites, they're looking out for each other. Oh, that's a Mennonite. That's a Mennonite. We see it like hockey players and, you know, politicians. Every Mennonite kind of knows who the Mennonites are. So in that regard, I've probably been identified by some as a Mennonite writer, but I really feel that I have not written a Mennonite book. I haven't written about my faith or my, my relationship to the church or Mennonites. Uh, in fact, this was kind of funny, but a few years ago, an academic from Goshen College, which is a Mennonite college in, in Indiana, she got in touch with me and she wanted to write about my books as they were published then, which didn't include my most recent novel at the time she tried to interpret them as Mennonite and and her piece really struggled with it. Like I could see she was really like grasping for, okay, how is this Mennonite? How is this? But she tried (laughs) and I am culturally Mennonite and I'm sure there are threads that have worked their way into my my writing that I'm not aware of and someone else can tell me about that.
1: That is often the academic's job, right? (laughs) To find those threads and, and weave them together critically, right? So that was, uh, I think, uh, like a family history where on several points you you touched on things that were controversial or contentious, and I appreciated your reading of your mother's feminist moment within the, the Mennonite Church and her break from it. And so I think I want to go to my next question about how you have written that you thrive on friction. I'm trying to say that word carefully, friction, and how what it has to do with writing fiction. Is it about finding those moments that grind against each other and, and make things difficult and interesting at the same time? or? Uh, how else would you define it?
0: I think this is pretty recent that I noticed that I'm drawn to friction as well as fiction. I don't think i spent enough time reflecting on that in terms of my writing. I think I've always seen my writing as a bit of an escape from the friction of real life as a way to kind of respond to it. I don't write my books thinking about how I'm going to put characters into conflict situations or anything like that. I'm just looking at characters. I really always start with characters. That's where I start in relationships. And I'm curious to see how people respond to each other and react in different situations. But it feels more natural to me than a sort of planned or plotted thing. I just, I'm interested. I'm just watching them interact and seeing what comes naturally to them. I would say the friction that I seek is more in my own life in a strange way, that I've always been a bit of a risk taker, even as a child, I would have this sense of myself as being on an adventure, kind of always, or I would set up adventures for myself. And I'm thinking way back to when I was a child, for example, well, this is a little bit older, but I would have been 12 or 13. We lived in the country for about five years, and I had horses close to here in near-air Ontario. I had this pony. I I like to ride standing up. <laughs> so just to give you an idea, I didn't have a bridle on that pony. I didn't have anything on. I would just, I would ride him bareback quite a lot, just in the field. And he would have like a harness on, like the altar, that's the word I'm looking for. But that doesn't have reins. It doesn't have a, a bit, it's not a bridle, and no saddle, of course. And I would love to ride this horse around the field and I would just get on him and and then I would try and stand up and get him to trot and run. Well, and of course my parents had no idea. This is just me off in some backfield doing this. And I just have a number of memories like that where I was kind of pushing, pushing out the boundaries of what I was afraid of and then kind of going toward that. And I do think, oh, there's that Sarah Pauly title, run toward the danger. And I, I was like, oh yeah. That's me. That's me. And I did that a lot in my teens, you know, with behavior that probably was pretty dangerous and risky and not great. And yet I can feel that even as I've matured and I want to live a healthier life and, you know, mentally and and physically that I still push toward the extreme. So after I'd had uh, Calvin, my youngest, I felt quite unfit. And so I started doing yoga, hot yoga. And then I was like, hey, I think I'm going to do a triathlon. Like I didn't even know how to swim and I was 36. And I said, yeah, I'm going to do a triathlon. Uh, I'm going to learn how to swim. And so I did, I learned how to swim. And I did, and I trained up to doing an Olympic length triathlon, which is 1500 meters open water swim. I did that within the year of learning how to swim. And if you've ever done an open water swim, it's kind of terrifying with 500 other people, you know, kicking and, and it's out in deep water. And I just did it. And then I got on my bike and I biked and I loved that too. But I was always slightly terrified that I might get thrown off the bike (laughs) or get hit by a car and then the running as well. And I did some extreme running for a while. Like I did marathoning and trail running, long distance trail running. And I ran a lot. I know I was doing that just to feel like, what does it feel like to push my body to its limits? It was a different kind of extreme. And I think even having four kids is its own kind of extremity. Like I just seem to pick extremity friction, but I like to get in there and then, solve it and make it a wonderful thing, like a good thing, not an awful thing. (laughs) Yeah, I I think in terms of my own writing, I've used it to respond to friction, I think, and to soothe it. There, There must be this double pull within me to both seek out friction, but then also seek how I can resolve and find peace within very extreme emotional moments or physical moments or experiences. And writing is kind of like that. I just, I go there and I watch my characters do things and I just observe them. And I do that in real life too. I'm just interested in how people survive things. I think that brings us very nicely to a discussion
1: of your latest novel, Francie's Got a Gun?, and I'm intrigued by the fact that you mentioned that the character always comes first for you, and this idea of uh, seeing a problem, right, and having it play out throughout the novel. In this, a particular novel, we've got uh, a community search for a child who has a gun in hand, right, and there's definitely a very strong tension around the idea of potential violence, right. I was very mindful as I was reading through it. I expected. Uh, in some ways, for the whole book to be about Francie, but it's really about a a broader look at community. You use a number of perspectives, again those characters, to tell the story. I think I'm going to ask you to read from it first, and then we'll talk a, a little bit about those two things I just mentioned and a few other parts of the book.
0: I'm tempted to read the prologue, which is it's sort of a separate thing, but it speaks to the whole book. Is that okay with you? Sure. Begin. Do fragments make a hole? You wake in the early hours before your alarm sounds and you wish you had someone to tell about this feeling washing your body of terror, nameless and blind and hauling you back through time. What was it like to be you when you were unformed and whole, innocent and brave, when everyone watched and nobody saw. Breathe, 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 you remind yourself. Breathe in, but also breathe out. You are curled tight on a futon on the floor, dim dawn light filtering through the high uncovered window. You can hear the birds. You remind yourself who you are, a strong woman, tough, ambitious. You've left behind childhood. You've earned the degree you could afford and a job. And you talk to your mom and your brother or text with them regularly. And you've been training your body since you were a kid. And this summer on the weekends, you're back to competing in road races, a half marathon, a triathlon, whatever you can sign up for and afford to get yourself to. You're never going to win, never going to be the best but that's not why you do it. Why do you do it? You set one hand on your stomach and one hand on your heart. You stretch out flat on your back. You could say that your body has a spirit or a soul, but when you search for it, try to see it. It cuts out like a firefly flickering on and off and gone in the night. You're not old. You've barely begun. Your capacity for growth feels infinite, but limited to your body. Maybe you're okay with that. Maybe you're not. Maybe you're torn, like your muscles, day in and day out, seeking endurance through suffering. But what if you don't want to suffer? What if you're done with all that? What if you want to rest, to relax, to forgive, to turn toward everything and everyone with hope and open arms. What then? What now? If you keep running through the same story, can you come around to a different end?
1: Thank you. I love to hear how that matches up with what we were just talking about in terms of pushing yourself to extremes. So we have that uh, perspective, that prologue from uh, within the body of a of a grown woman. One of the things I was interested in, as you spread these perspectives out across the community, is how the single incident of Francie running with the gun becomes a kind of linchpin for everyone to uh, to comment on the tensions of their own lives. Can you say a little bit ab- about that?
0: It's funny because when I think about this this novel. She wasn't carrying a gun at the beginning when I started writing it. It was a long haul, this novel. I, it went through many iterations. And then the first one, it was more about Francie and her best friend and how they spent time together. And, and I was going back to my own childhood and thinking about what it was like to have a best friend And kind of a pretty free childhood, which I did definitely have. We lived in a small town and we were free, even as, you know, at the age of seven and eight to just go between each other's houses and run around. We lived near a college campus. And so there were, there was like a little creek that ran through there and woods, and we were free to just go and play. And we would climb trees and and have these adventures of our own imagining. And so that was what I really wanted to capture when I started writing Francie. But then I saw that she was actually running from something that she, of course, it's not me. I'm not writing about myself. I should also say that the other thing I'm trying to do when I start writing is I'm trying to capture a feeling. This is what it felt like to be free in the world and to have that sense of freedom, even though I'm a very small being. And so I saw that she was running away from something as well. And she was carrying something. I just didn't know what it was. And I was a good six months into the project before I was like, oh dear, I think it's a gun. That's what she's carrying. And I do see it as being a kind of a fable as much as it is. It's a realistic novel, obviously, but it's also, there's something fable-like to it. And I wanted the gun and this child carrying a gun to mean what I think it means, which is that this child is in charge of pain and suffering and problems that she cannot solve. And a lot of children carry that weight. And it isn't necessarily a gun, obviously, but a gun is representative of that weight that children carry of things that they shouldn't have to and that are far above their ability to comprehend. And so they're trying to solve it with whatever tools they have. And in Francie's case, it's her imagination. She's trying to solve it by imagining these different storylines that could come from it and herself as capable of solving it. But the interesting thing is that I think we do that as adults too, that we imagine how we could solve things too, problems that are probably beyond us too. So each of these characters, I did visualize them as being on their own spiritual path. Even if they had no idea they were on a spiritual path, that's okay. I saw them as being on a path of some sort. And I think, you know, yearning for something and that the child with the gun is a problem that can't really be solved because the harm is already done. The child has the gun. It's already done. Well, what do you do as a community? And do you step back and say, well, we should have solved this before it happened. And I think there's some characters who are in that kind of position, thinking they should have done more beforehand. And then maybe there are some that are thinking they could actually solve it now. And there are some who don't even see the problem. They're so wrapped up in themselves that they aren't aware of of anything else. And that there are all these different ways that we approach what are these large human fundamental problems that we have yet to solve. And we keep thinking that we're going to. I always find it funny when people say, but it's 2000, you know, it's 2023. Why are we still at war? Why do women still earn less than men? Like there are just all kinds of things you could say. It's 2023, but okay, but we could say that forever. The same issues come again and again. And somehow as humans, we just haven't been able to solve them. And yet I think that within the the structure of the novel, I was also trying to create some hope that despite there being these insoluble problems that are cyclical, that continue, that there are ways that we can come together and support each other and that there is hope. And that's why I feel that the prologue is Francie in her grown-up body, trying to understand what she can do with this story, that as part of her past, but it still affects her in her present state, which we all have that. We all have these stories that we carry and these memories that are just imprinted on us and they're generational memories. Maybe they go back through the generations and we're carrying them. And what do we do with that? And so that is also the the big question in the book. And of course, I think it's not really the job of a novel (laughs) or a writer to give pat answers to things. I think it's more to open up these mysteries that we all live through. You know, our lives here are very short. We don't get a lot of time to solve things. You don't know that when you're a child. You don't know that when you're a teenager. But boy, it goes fast. I had an infant, which seems like a blink of a time a moment ago. And now my kids are basically almost all grown up. How does that happen? And I don't know that I'm any smarter than I used to be. And I certainly haven't solved any of the things that I wanted to solve. So yeah, I think that the, the book is, is about that. It's like a sort of big question. What do we do? What do you do? And I think part of the answer is you just are where you're at. And you're on that path, even if you don't know it. And you are going somewhere and you are carrying things with you. And you do have choices. You do have choices that you can make. You aren't completely trapped in who you are. You do have choices of how you respond, even if it feels like your choices are really limited. We do have the capacity to respond differently.
1: I was interested in, as I read different characters' perspectives, that everybody was hungry for change. You know, and I like what you said about even, even if they didn't know they were hungry for change or even if they didn't think of it as a spiritual path, everybody seemed to be ready for change. And sometimes I'm thinking particularly about Francis' father and his, uh, and his struggles with addiction. He keeps saying, this time it's going to be different. I'm ready for change. I've got the problem solved, Right. So even he has this strange form of hope. The, the person who seems the most lost, he still has this strange form of hope that he's not going to, to fall victim to his addictions, that he, that he is a good father, that that he that he is a good business partner, that it's all gonna be okay if only, right? So and, and that of course, I think is is part of the the pain of the novel too, right? Is that it's quite clear that happy ending for that guy is not coming. Right. I don't think I'm giving anything away about the novel by saying that, <laughs> you know, and I know you're, you're said it's a, it's a realist novel, but boy, that idea that the gun never leaves her hand, it seems like it's welded to her hand. Right. And for, for almost the, the entire time, as that went on throughout the novel, I couldn't help but think that um, this was becoming an extension of her right? Mm-hmm. And that too is its own problem, right? And of course, in some ways, its own hope, because she has the gun, no one else has it. And that's mm-hmm. a kind of hope, at least for her. Okay, I want to talk a little bit more about hope. I was quite intrigued in this story of uh, potential violence and a lot of a lot of tension of the role of singing and choir work in it, uh, especially because <laughs> you write, Francie's voice is kind of a conundrum. It's big and she has confidence in singing her solo, but it's not what we would call a good voice or not a traditionally good voice. And I thought that was fascinating, especially with the the best friend's mother listening to her practice and thinking, what is going on in that choir? That kid's solo is so strange, right? Can you say what to, what you were thinking with that?
0: I wanted her to be a real character, like a real person with the realistic talents. I I have loved going and listening to young people sing, which I've gotten to do in various concerts, Christmas concerts, you know, things that happen at schools. And I, I have just always admired and been so deeply moved by the children who sing and they're brave enough to sing, even though it's a bit off but they are there for it. And in fact, I actually was just at my daughter's graduation last night and there was a band that played an interlude, you know, a young man, teenager, he sang, and it was so beautiful and it wasn't perfect, but he was putting himself, his whole heart into this expression that, I don't know, I just found it so moving and I always do. And so I didn't want her to have one of those perfect voices, angelic voices where you're just like, oh, she's got this wonderful talent that hasn't been discovered and it's gonna save her. No, she has this real talent that we kind of could all have or maybe do all have that's accessible. It belongs to her and she's proud of it. She loves that she has this voice. She doesn't quite know what its power is, But I do think most of the talents that really move me are the ones that are, that are imperfect. I don't want to see a perfect performance. I don't want to read a perfect book. I don't know how to say it quite. Like, I just think we are so complex as humans. And so to be able to see someone perform in a flawed way is just so much more moving to me than for someone to be straining to be perfect. Because I think there's so much hiding behind that kind of a performance or fear. And there's something very fearless about just belting it out as yourself. You know, I love that. And I do think children have the capacity for that and grownups tend to lose it. And you see kids losing it right around the age that they hit puberty and adolescence and they start to become more aware of themselves as a self in the world. And then things can become very tense and tight and, and that fear of failure and the desire for perfection or pleasing other people becomes more important. But boy, if we can tap into that sort of purity of just, just letting it all hang out, I think that's where the magic is. And I do think that's where art really happens, too.
1: I thought it was an, a really important moment and and one that, that you come back to a, a couple of times from, from a couple perspectives with missing choir practice and what her friend thinks of her singing, what her friend's mother thinks of her, her singing. I think we hear from Francie's own mother about what she thinks of the singing. I thought it was really important because we saw so much of Francie as a, a Francie's anxieties and worries, and you know, you're running through a neighborhood with a gun. You, you're allowed to have anxieties and worries, um, so I really—it was really important for me to see a moment from the rest of her life where she felt solid, right, and not at all a, a worried girl with a, a problem that is too big for her to solve, right. Thank you for listening to this episode of Watershed Riders. We appreciate your listenership. You can find us every Sunday at 10 a.m. on Midtown Radio KW. Or you can hop on over to SoundCloud to listen whenever you want. We have amassed quite a library of interviews over our three and a half seasons. And they're all there for your listening pleasure. So you can listen live or listen later. For more information about our lineup of authors, please visit our website at www.watershedwriters.ca. You spoke, of course, of your own uh, running practice, and I know a lot of writers run. I don't anymore, but I I used to, and uh, I know when I did, I thought of it very much as the same same kind of thing as as writing, right? You had to have strength and stamina and sometimes it was good to have speed and sometimes it was good to be slow and all of those things. Uh, you've said a little bit about your, your writing practice uh, and your running practice and I know you've written about running quite a bit. I think of your novel, Girl Runner. I right? had a historical novel uh, about an Olympian. Yeah, so writing about running is a whole other thing, right? Because I didn't write very much about running. What are you aiming for when you're writing about running?
0: What's the most important thing for you when you do that? I think it's the embodiment of what it feels like to be inside your body when you're running. And I wrote Girl Runner after I had done all the training and and done the triathlon and marathoning and all of that. Then I did get interested in running as a subject and then also interested in women's history and and then women's sport history and, and how distance running was considered you know, unhealthy for women to do, and they weren't allowed to do it even, and they weren't allowed to compete at distances. Uh, ironically, women tend to be actually very good and better than men at very long distance running, just the way that our bodies are made. So the history was of interest to me, and then the running itself and how it feels to be running, because so I, I think it gets me inside my body in a way that almost nothing else does. I never really thought of, plot lines or worked things out when i was running i just ended up being in my body it, you know it was kind of meditative in that sense of of just quieting the mind or thinking about something very repetitive i would try and figure out miles to kilometers and how fast i was going and i could never do the math and so i would just go over and over these numbers that's familiar very familiar of my runs because i'm not all that great at math and i'd be like was this a mile is this a you know what would it be and it was just kind of an emptying out which I've always felt is important that you do need to empty out in order to write. And I don't actually run very much anymore because of all the injuries and because I'm getting old, but I do yoga and I do yoga very faithfully now. And I do find that it's kind of similar. You're, you're in your body and what does it mean to be in your body and very aware that you're in your body? Because we tend to go through our days sometimes sometimes, more in our heads, right? It's still in our bodies. We're always in our bodies, but we aren't so aware that we're there. When you're running, when you're doing yoga and you're thinking about just how your body feels in this moment, how's the breath coming in and out? Like running is just so natural. You're of course paying attention to your breath. You can't help it. It's a feeling of being alive that I think it just feels like a real privilege. And that's why I wanted to write Girl Runner because I thought, well, what would I do if I wasn't able to do this? Like, What if some nobody would let me run? Like, I love running. I love the feel of it. And like the, the freedom and the endorphins and the rush and the being at more of a physical extremity, like not being allowed to do that just seemed very strange. Like, how would you get that energy out otherwise? <laughs> how would you burn the energy? What would feed you? And I'm sure there must have been other things, but I was curious to know what it would be like to be a woman who really wanted to run and then wasn't allowed to. What would that feel like? A good question. A good
1: question. Can you talk a little bit about your work with Linda Berry's uh, creative exercise of working with a page with a big old X drawn on it and I know you've also been using uh, some of that those exercises to coach others in writing but uh, I mean I'm interested in how you've used it yourself.
0: Well the X page and Linda Berry's teaching has become very important to uh, my writing life. I was introduced to it in 2013 and then by a friend who'd been to a workshop with Linda Berry. And she's like, you have to find out more about this. And then I had also just started teaching creative writing and I did not know what I was doing. I'd never taken a creative writing course. I just am a writer. So how do I help students write? Because the things that that seemed to come naturally to me didn't really necessarily seem to come naturally to the students I was teaching. And so I really found that this Linda Berry method with the X page and it's, a, it's kind of a whole thing and you can use it to write anything. You could write fiction, poetry, nonfiction. It's very adaptable, but essentially it gets you inside your own body, inside your senses. You often do start with a real memory. So something that's grounded in reality, a place, and you look around the inside this memory and you see what you see and you start to smell what you smell and, and what you touch and feel. And so it's a very, it's like a sensory beginning for me. My writing just always kind of started with the senses and the body and what's it like to be in this space. And so it, it just seemed like, okay, this is a way to help the students see rather than try to write themselves there. they actually need to be there and then you write. And so that's, that's basically the, the concept underlying this page with the X drawn across it, where you, you know, where you pour all these things out and then you write when you write from your senses. So I use that when I was teaching and I've used it whenever I need a little bit of inspiration, but I find that I don't actually need to use it because I go there naturally. People think writing is a certain thing, but in my experience, it's not. (laughs) And so when people are trying to write, they're trying to be very deliberate. It bridges the gap between what you think writing is and what writing actually is. It sort of helps people who are not necessarily writers to write in beautiful, Very interesting, kind of amazing ways, just because they're in touch with the sensual world, the sensory reality that is actually what we write from. And I know this is true because I have used it not just in my classes, but also in a storytelling workshop that uh, was started in 2019, I co founded called the X Page Workshop. We bring women from the community in who are not necessarily writers, not necessarily uh, English as a first language speakers the stories are beautiful, and they're beautiful because they come from this sensory in the body place. Whether or not the people writing the stories know that, that's that's what the exercise is about.
1: So can you read us uh, an example of something you've written using this method?
0: Last winter, I taught creative writing at the University of Waterloo, and it was a, an advanced creative writing course. I always start with poetry because poetry seems like the place to start, it's short for one thing <laughs> yep. and it's really flexible and, and it gets at kind of all the things that I've been talking about, like the sensory stuff. You really want it to come out in poetry. Uh, an exercise that I did was I had everybody start with a memory of a room in their house from childhood and it didn't have to be a particular room, just any room that came to their mind and they make a list of memories. And the other thing I have to say is that when I'm teaching, I always write along with my class doesn't matter what I'm doing, I wouldn't miss it for the world. Like, this is what I try to tell them. Like, I'm not doing it to be (laughs) a particular kind of teacher. It's that I love writing and I'm not gonna miss out on the opportunity to get to write. So I was right along with the students. So I chose the memory of a bedroom that was in a house that I'd lived in when I would have been about the age that Francie was, maybe a little bit younger. So that kind of that childhood era that I was talking about before when when I had a a best friend and we would go exploring. So that was the bedroom that came to my mind. And then there's a series of questions that I asked that get answered on this X page. And then I asked the students to write a poem where they were just describing that memory. I'm gonna read you uh, what I wrote. So it's called Mom and Dad's Bedroom in Bluffton. Comforter all rumpled in the middle of the bed, One body, another body, breathing in the darkness. Wood boards under my bare feet, smells of heat, roar of fire behind scorched wallpaper, scorched wallpaper, flames, a dream, hot body, arms and legs tangled in sheets, shadow of dresser, bureau, mirror, curtain thin over window, street light, crumpled tissue paper, my heart beating fast, faster. Are you having a bad dream? A handful of jewelry on the bureau under the mirror, fake gold, silver, giant earrings, round, broken, red, whole. So that was step one of that exercise. And then for step two, I said, now take one object in the room and just describe it. And I don't want you to describe it using any metaphorical language. You're just going to describe it. So this was part two of that poem exercise. The bed. It is rectangular. Heaps of sheets, tangled quilt never made. It smells like skin and sweat. It is soft. It sinks down in the middle. It has two mattresses and a wooden headboard and flat squashed pillows. There is a crack between the mattress and the wall. The bed is on wheels, metal frame. It squeaks when we jump on it. The ceiling rains down plaster flakes that crackle on the quilt. The wallpaper over the bed is scorched. It was pale white with flowers. Now it is yellow and brown just there above the bed. And then I had a third poem And I wanted them to write one more time, the same subject matter. I wanted them to be returning as they were now to this room that they were remembering from childhood. And they're just going to come back and go back to it. What's it telling them as they go back? And so this is the final poem from that series. Mine is called Marriage Bed. You are gone, not gone, gone, but gone from each other. I do not think I want to remember you together, but here you are, asleep, dreaming in the dark. And here I am at the door, scared to come in, scared to stand in the hallway, scared of it all. The dream I've just woken from and the presence of you, not apparitions, not ghosts, but carnal. You smell all too human. I can't see you clearly. You are shadows tangled together under the sheets. You don't even know I'm standing, watching, conjuring a fire behind the wallpaper in the faulty chimney that will burn this bed to ashes.
1: Thank you for walking us through that. I think that will spark all kinds of reaction and all kinds of questions for our listeners. Um, but again, the originator of X exercise, exercise with the, the X page originated with the cartoonist and uh, writer Linda J. Berry in the United States. So uh, you can you can find that I think quite easily well, online.
0: And I was also gonna say, if you wanna look it up and try it for yourself, she leads some X page writing exercises that are quite marvelous. There's one that you can look for on YouTube where she's wearing these star-shaped sunglasses. Just go and do it, it'll be a blast. And she leads you through it and it gives you a taste of it.
1: Ooh, and you get some Linda J. Berry talking, which I always love, that's great. I wanted to ask you a little bit about your new job. And, uh, cause you said you you have a job right now that that isn't uh, actually that much about writing. I, you know, I think that's intriguing because I sometimes think, Literary culture, particularly in Canada, uh, likes to look down on people who work for a living. And as, as a working-class person uh, who is who's now, you know, has a middle-class job, I, I have to say, I, you know, I, I kind of resent that, right? So especially if those jobs don't have, you know, have little or, or nothing to do with writing. So I think that's kind of snobby. And I want to hear about your new job. And uh, I note that on your blog, you made the statement that you found it very freeing in the early weeks. And is that still true for you?
0: Oh, I love having a job. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And I think I've been just puzzling over this. So my, my job for many years was to be a writer. That's what I wanted to do. And that's what I wanted to be. And I also had these four kids, which conveniently meant that I was mostly looking after them. And my husband mostly supported us and I would apply for grants and, I did get some grants and that would help with babysitting. And I did some writing for online, other, you know, magazines. And I did reviewing and book reviewing. I did everything that was kind of connected to being a writer, including teaching creative writing, which I did for 10 years at the University of Waterloo. But all of it, it was part time, casual, contract, you know, job by job, no benefits. I don't know, I was kind of setting my own goals and and forcing myself to chase these jobs down. Like if you've ever done freelance writing, you're just constantly trying to churn out ideas and get editors to pay attention and hire you. You're not making any money, not making very much money. It is kind of funny that in Canada, we would look down on people having real jobs who are writers because in Canada, you do not make much money as a writer. And in fact, you make less than you used to make because my, my very first real, real job was at The National Post newspaper, right when it was starting up, in their book section, it was flush with Conrad Black's cash, I was hired into their book section. And we had three people working in the book section. Three people. Imagine that. Some newspapers don't even have book sections anymore. And we would pay our writers, uh, most of whom were writers, reviewers, we'd pay them $750 a review. I mean, you do not make that now. And you didn't even make that a decade ago. You'd be lucky to make $250 for a review or even less sometimes. The bottom has fallen out of the market for being a writer or probably a journalist as well. It's very difficult to make a living in Canada in our small market. That said, I did make some nice money with Girl Runner because it's sold outside of Canada. And that's really your only hope is that if you can sell in other markets, especially the United States, then you can make some money. So for a brief while there, I felt like, oh, I actually can make money as a writer. But I would have to say I've gone back to thinking, no, not really, not really. Not unless you invest it really well and I don't know. It's a discouraging thing to do, to be a writer. You're using your own energy at all times to create a life for yourself. And so stepping into a job, and I'll say now what my job is, I applied last fall to work for the public school board as what they call a THR, which is just a temporary hourly worker going into schools as either a secretary or library clerk. And so I started that work last November, very little training, but you know, I just jumped in there, went to all these different schools, wherever there was an opening, I would go in pretty much working full time, but just day by day, I wouldn't know where I was going. Quite exciting. I have to say, I just found it lovely. I would go and someone would tell me what to do and i would have a job set out for me the bar seemed quite low i could easily meet expectations and i would go home happy i've earned a bit of money and i've done my job i never felt that with writing <laughs> literally never because if you finish a project you're just thinking about what the next project's going to be and do you finish a project to satisfaction ever probably not like you're never going to meet that beautiful book inside your head is not going to be the book that you end up writing it just doesn't happen that way and so i took a, a a permanent job. So I'm no longer a THR. I'm now a permanent. And I thought I would be going into a library, but instead I've gone as a secretary into a school. It's a busy downtown school in Kitchener and I'm a secretary. And I'm there basically before the first bell rings till till after the last bell rings. It is chaotic. It is hugely busy. It's a very busy school, lots of needs, lots of new families new to Canada who are in the school just lots of life. And I love it. And I am not finding that I'm able to write while I'm doing it. But I feel that maybe that's just the the season that I'm in is the season of gathering and being part of the friction. And I'm not really working it out on the page. I'm working it out in real life, in real time. It's the kind of job where the phone is always ringing. People are often calling with problems. They're calling because they're unhappy about something. They're calling because they're upset about something or kids are coming into the office because they've skinned their knee outside or they've bumped their head on something or it's a behavior issue. And so there's just this constant flow of friction coming into my environment. And my job is to be there in the friction. And I see my job as basically trying to help people kind of have a better day in some small way. And that I have the capacity to do that, and I have a job where I can do that. I am so appreciative of that. It, it gives me a sense of purpose that I didn't have as a writer. I never have had that as a writer. I'm really, I'm sort of in a, in a curious time in my writing life. I'm not really sure what I will do as a writer. I can't imagine not writing, but I'm so enjoying being in the world. It's, it's a strange thing, because I do recognize that being able to write and communicate and for people to feel the things that I want them to feel like that's a magical thing to be able to do and I don't want to minimize it but I also love being with people and helping them feel better in the moment which is kind of to me what writing is just responding in the moment to what's happening and paying attention listening paying attention I mean that's the hugest thing and that's really what writing has always been is just paying attention the characters. I I don't know. There's some symmetry in terms of what I'm doing and my life as a writer. I just haven't figured out if those lines are just these parallel lines going beside each other that never cross, or if maybe someday I'll figure out how to bring it together.
1: I'm mindful of the fact that you uh, used to have a house full of small beings that you were taking care of. And when you were describing your work in the office, it sounds to me like you've taken that sort of um, all, all those mothering skills and like and now are applying them widely through a school of several thousand as opposed to, um, <laughs> you know, of your, your four individual kids, right? So it's certainly it's more than that. But I, I, I was thinking of sort of crowds of people and unpredictability, and I thought, You are well trained in this.
0: (laughs) (laughs) It gives me pleasure to be able to respond in a way that feels true to myself and not reactive. Like I'm not taking things personally. I'm just there. You are having a bad day. What can I do? I can hear you. I can listen to you. I can't necessarily solve your problems, but I can listen to you.
1: We were talking about uh, women runners, particularly women writers. I wanted to ask you if you've read Ann Patchett's Run. Of course, and it's got that that young woman uh, runner in it, who I love. I, th- I thought that was a, a wonderful portrayal of someone who really needs to run, right? And really needs to to exercise. And she talks about how to get that energy out of her body. But since we're talking about uh, Anne Patchett, she has quite famously said on a number of occasions that she writes each of her novels with the same goal in mind, that she takes disparate characters and she puts them in a situation where they have to react to each other like a family, even though they may not necessarily be a family. So she likes to put them together in this family-like relationship and see what happens. And she also says that she diagnoses this in herself as her attempt to rewrite uh, Thomas Mann's uh, The Magic Mountain. Now, (laughs) I'm always struck by the audacity of this statement and the sort of self-reflexive view of her own writing. Uh, So I'm asking all my novelist friends about it, whether they do something similar or, or what they think of, a, of this kind of a statement and about the awareness of this kind of method, which I think Patchett has been pretty frank about, but I'm not sure that everybody does it this way. Do you see a similarity between uh, your novels or a, like a similar kind of template that you can recognize in each of them?
0: I'm going to say no. I don't write my novels that way. I do love Anne Patchett's writing in her novels. I think I've probably read them all. Like, I know Lucy who is the father in Francie is not a good guy. And I know that, but I still, uh, when I was writing him, I could see that he saw himself as being a good guy. And I felt that deeply. And I felt real empathy for this man who was not a good guy. And that's how I write. And in terms of structuring a novel, oh boy, I mean, I wish I had some formula that would work. I think I've done each one quite differently The way that I come at it is that I see it as almost an architectural structure. I have a visual image of what the book is in my mind. For example, Francie, I could see as a labyrinth. That's how I saw it. Like the labyrinth, the meditative kind of labyrinth. Not a maze, but a labyrinth where you walk a a path in and a path out. And I saw that each character was walking that path in and path out. And that's how the whole book was structured. Uh, you know, the first half it's as they start in, and they're they get somewhere, and then they turn around and come out. and And it, it's how the book is structured. Seems kind of weird, but that's true. <laughs> and and when I was writing Girl Runner, I had this visual of this sort of level up here, and then she's dipping back, dipping back, dipping back. And it's it's not linear at all. Her memories aren't coming to her in a linear way. I can't work from a plot outline. They bore me to tears. If I wrote a plot outline, I just wouldn't bother to write the book. I try to discover as I write and it is an excruciating process because it means I'm gonna get it kind of wrong and then I will have to go back and figure out again and again and again until I actually get what I'm getting at. It's not the greatest way to write a book but it doesn't really matter because that's the only way I can do it. (laughs) And it's clearly mattered to me to write books so I've done it whatever way I can.
1: Well, there's that theory that, of, of course, that there are, are plotters and pantsers, right? People who plot first and people who fly by the seat of their pants and discover, right? And I, I, I'm the second kind as well, right? Uh, I always think I have this great idea and then I end up writing it and it's a completely different idea. As once it's as Isn't down that on amazing? The, Isn't the that thing. the best part? Yeah.
0: Yeah,
1: Yeah. you you know, everyone does starts with an idea, but you don't have to stick to it. Right. And, and, you know, I agree. I think that is the best part for sure. I want to thank you for being our guest today on Watershed Writers. It was a delight to hear about, uh, you know, all your thoughts about about writing and, of course, about uh, not writing, because that's that's important, too this has been carrie snyder and you can find carrie's books at wherever fine literature is sold you can find her latest francie's got a gun or her earlier novels as well including girl runner you can find them via wordsworth books in waterloo the bookshelf in guelph or rookery books in cambridge and we always encourage you to support your local independent bookseller Thanks for joining us for this episode. Watershed Writers comes to you every Sunday at 10 a.m. on Midtown Radio. And if you miss an episode or just want to listen again, you can catch up with episodes posted to SoundCloud and to our website at watershedwritersalloneword.ca. all one word, .ca. Coming up on the podcast, we talk with Governor General's award-winning author, Anuja Varghese, about her short story collection, Chrysalis. We talk with poet, Chris Banks about mental health and the tensions of late-stage capitalism in his new book, Alternator, and with first-time novelist James Sharani about his novel Between the Head and the Hands. We're always looking out for writers in the region, and if you know someone you'd like to hear us interview, drop us a line and let us know. Francis Roberts Riley is the founder and producer of Watershed Writers. John Roscoe is our technical producer. And I am Tannis MacDonald, your host and voracious reader. Our theme music is Water by the Kitchener singer-songwriter Alicia Brilla. Join us again next week to listen local and think global.